Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Be There in Five, the podcast. How I Built This, part two. If you are new here, I suggest you go to How I Built This, part one, or else this might, may not make a lot of sense because I'm just going to pick up where we left off in an, in an effort to not make you spend too much time here. Even though I know I've made you wait so long, you might hugely resent me for the buildup, but I promise to make this worth your time. Really, this is just, it, it's a different... It's very different than the first half. I, I like to think of the first half of Be There in Five Story as a story of adrenaline, of the, the fight or flight mode your body and your mind goes into when there's both uh, shock and stress that enhance your state of being, that gloriously agnostic state of energy where the circumstances dictate your response and there's no concept of space or time or your future or your past or risk, you just go, you just do, you just be, you just are. And I was incredibly shocked at how well I responded to that level of stress and surprise. I think the first year, one to two years, was really a long sustained phase of, I can't believe this happened, and I can't believe this is continuing to happen, but it's probably going to end soon too, I can't believe this is sustainable oh, okay, now I actually need to think about this as a serious business and build a sustainable model instead of just, you know, try to ride out the wave of popularity. And the further I got into that, the further it became clear I needed to um, leave my job. It became clear I needed to have help, a separate office. I needed to diversify my offerings. And I kind of talked through that the whole last episode. And where I left off, basically I had just left my job and I finally found a resource that would make the mats for me with lower minimums that I'd that I'd ever seen anywhere else they were expensive but they at least would let me in the door um everywhere else I had talked to for the first year and a half needed minimums in the in the thousands per skew and I, I had no means to predict the popularity of each phrase, of each size, of each style, whatever. So I, I got a manufacturer, made my popular phrases into doormats that would ship to you weeks faster for a third less of the price. And thought like, great, my business is going to pivot. I found a manufacturing solution. Etsy allows manufacturers now if you're responsible for the majority of the supply chain and I uh, nobody bought them (laughs) they were all still buying the hand-painted mats that took forever that lasted less long and that were more expensive and I think that's a huge testament to the buyer on Etsy they've since shifted their value proposition from being about the, the the maker and the handmade element to more that of it being a marketplace for unique and custom items They used to call themselves a handmade marketplace. Now I'm pretty sure they call themselves a specialty marketplace, which, you know, I have a lot of thoughts about right now that I won't get into at at this moment. But it's it's a tricky uh, transition where a lot of sellers like myself have really prioritized and followed the rules and tried to maintain the integrity of a true handmade marketplace where buyers come to a certain place and think, you know, for the markup and for the extra wait time and for every aspect of the shop that's probably a little bit less streamlined than something you would buy on an Amazon Prime, they're okay with it given the nature of the marketplace, given they're ordering from a one-woman shop from 
a, a small business owner in a small town who's trying to get by from a person who's doing living out their lifelong crafting dreams on the side. I mean, Etsy sells products, but it also sells stories. And I do think that even in this world of instant gratification, there is still room for that motivation on behalf of a buyer. But with Etsy shifting away from really controlling if it's handmade, really shutting down shops that are mass manufacturers, they, they're they kind of inadvertently allowing the major shops disguising themselves as Etsy shops that are big businesses that were existing big businesses that just kind of made a digital storefront to look like their small mom and pop. Those are the types that are flourishing because they do free shipping deals. They do sales. They get incredible SEO because Etsy's favorable toward any of the products that make it look like they're in close competition with Amazon Prime. And I think I've been a little disappointed in, in the past year or so that the pivot on Etsy's part is more to adapt to the Amazon style marketplace and less to lean into what's always made Etsy different. And I know that as a business, they have to focus on their bottom line and their margins, but they doubled our fees and completely changed SEO. So who who gets featured and why is entirely dependent on, a, on the types of things like sales coupons and shipping that will ultimately lose me money. So Etsy has really, really changed. Um, and I went on that tangent just briefly, sorry. But what was great about it at the time is that they, they used to be very strict about handmade only. Um, meaning you had to make it with your own hands or somebody directly you know, hired by your shop in your shop and they didn't want production of any kind. When I had just started, they implemented Etsy manufacturing where as long as you disclosed that they were made by a manufacturer and you were responsible for the design and the um, customer service and the fulfillment and the packaging and the brand, I mean, all of that stuff, that's what really defines handmade was less about the production of the product itself and more about the the overall business and ownership of an entity that has a special level of care, specialty, customization that a major shop just isn't going to have. And I really liked this theory because in limiting the ability of sellers to have help in making their products and to use the streamlined tools of other businesses to contribute to their growth that in limiting that, they were, Etsy was ultimately going to limit their own success, right? There needed to be a way for sellers to scale. Instead of going for just a volume of seller strategy where just let's get as many people to do their small craft thing as possible and just kind of, you know, have a small side business, they needed to find ways to increase the value of the individual seller. And I thought this manufacturing move I really supported and believed in. Um but with that, they also started Etsy Wholesale. Um, so this was a great place for me to start wholesaling because, as I mentioned, I had finally found this manufacturing solution I had dumped so much effort into. So as Etsy was evolving, I think they were trying to get some of their high-growth sellers to evolve as well. And these things go hand in hand because you can't really manufacture or scale a handmade product very easily without some manufacturing assistance. And as you know, the business model behind wholesale is you get volume discounts due to buying in bulk. And doing that with a very high labor item is very, very difficult. I always say that a handmade 
a scalable handmade business is somewhat of an oxymoron, though I think it can be done. And that's a lot of the consulting I do is just helping people understand the way a business can be structured so that it can be profitable and sustainable when the work is very high labor. What's interesting is that you'll find out down the line that where I didn't excel, and now I could probably tell you how to do it, but at the time where I didn't excel was in wholesale, was in when somebody made the production a hell of a lot easier for me. How do you grow and how do you keep outdoing yourself and how do you find a way to manage both the risk and cost of scaling up your business, um, but not absolutely flounder in the execution when you have no idea what you're doing. So anyways, I have all of these mats that I had pre-printed with my popular SKUs. And the, the difficult part with doormats, where this all starts to get really challenging for me, is kind of rooted in just how much physical space these things take up. How unbelievably heavy and exhausting they are in bulk how many years of my life I probably lost carrying ginormous boxes of these things. I mean, they, they're just very large items and is in large quantities become overwhelming, absolutely overwhelming. And I, I, it's probably like hard to explain unless you're um, amongst the piles of mats. And how and all of a lot of my decisions become about pushing out inventory when prior to this, everything I did was made to order. With these printed mats... I was like, okay, great. Wholesale makes a ton of sense because instead of selling them for full price, you sell minimum quantities so you make up the difference in the wholesale markdown with volume. So I thought, it, it, yes and no. The typical keystone markup for a wholesale product is 50%. So you price it at 50% of the MSRP manufacturer suggested retail price or whatever price it is in your shop. And set minimums so it makes up for the loss of half of the amount and i think that this keystone model makes tons of sense in the regular manufacturing retail world and it gives retailers flexibility to even enhance that markup slightly because higher end luxury retailers really seek margins of closer to like 70 percent than the classic 50 especially if you're incurring some risk, if you need to discount it, whatever. So when Etsy moved into wholesale, they reached out to me and really wanted me to start doing wholesale. And I was like, and I thought it was an interesting idea. It was an interface that was synonymous with your Etsy listings, but there was a separate login and it was a blind store unless you were a member of Etsy wholesale that normal customers couldn't see. So you have to like build a line sheet you have to set your wholesale prices. You have to set your minimum quantities. You kind of have to build this whole other section of your business. And around the time, like right after I quit my job, I thought, I, I, I don't know why, but I was like, this will be worth it. This is just what you do. If you have a product and a lot of people want to buy it, you should wholesale it to other stores. Like that's just is what it is. In retrospect, I would say, if your costs are already really low and you've gone through the whole process of finding a way to get your product made for the cheapest, in the cheapest way possible, for the highest quality possible, in the quickest time possible, awesome. But that takes years and years to refine and a lot of relationship building. For small businesses that are st that, whose costs are still pretty high because their minimums are low, 
And for people that have a ways that they could still be growing and saturating on the direct-to-customer side, always, always, always max out, saturate, really just make your direct-to-customer as big as possible. That's your biggest margin. That's your area of the most control. And that is just where my sweet spot and my happy place was that I didn't realize. In entering wholesale, it was a big part of kind of my decline in this chapter, the decline of my energy, the decline of my income, the poor budgeting of of time and resources, just kind of everything. Um, So on the one hand, the hand part of my business was going well. I had hired two people off Craigslist who then referred to other people. At one point we had five, then we went down to two regulars, then we had three. And for the longest period of time, we had three people that would come in and out. So I hiring people to help was like one of the scariest moves I made, but it was one of the most important things I did was to delegate the process. I think the hard part, especially for anything you physically make, especially for anything artistic, is you consider yourself somewhat indispensable to the production and assume it's not something other people can learn, but it is. It 100% is. And they'll probably do it better. Or in my case, what happened is that they weren't doing it better, but they were doing it good enough and teaching me that the customers were fine with good enough, that I was projecting an idea of perfection onto the customer that that didn't exist because I was the proud maker. And I always tell people that above all else, when you're producing something, especially in the Etsy space, perfection doesn't exist in the absence of a customer's opinion because you think something needs to look a certain way because you've seen it a million times, but you have to think of if nobody's ever seen this before and has no preconceived notions of what it looks like lo- looks like outside of a two-dimensional image, would they be impressed by this? And the answer is usually yes. Not to say you, you send people you know, garbage product, but I, I spent too much time obsessing. So in a lot of ways, the people that worked for me made it... Um, helped me to reframe the amount of time I was spending and the way I saw quality. Um, the hard part for me was, well, A, I mentioned I, I don't love to manage people. I've, I have a really hard time, and I, I don't know if this is something inherent we need to work on, a muscle I haven't uh, exercised enough, but I have trouble managing and being an, an authoritative but also friendly figure. I think you're... It's, it's a, you're in a weird position when you have to spend a lot of time with the people, but you also have to respect the laws that distinguish contractors from employees. I was not in a position to hire employees. I didn't want anybody's income dependent on the success of my shop. It was a level of pressure I wasn't ready for, and it, I didn't have a good precedent set at that time a year and a half in in terms of how long this is going to last or really the long-term health of the company. So I really was looking for a certain type of person that needed work, that wanted something that was flexible, that kind of had uh, hours all over the place, that could kind of work when they wanted to, that, um, you know, was kind of mindless, but not necessarily uninteresting because you could kind of learn from me as I built a business if you wanted to. Um, basically, I had this office building a room. It was like a 300 square foot room. 
And I had all of the paint and all of the brushes, all of the rugs, everything there. I'd put up a list for the week usually and would say, this is what I need. As long as you come in and as long as you do a good job, I'll pay you per rug. And since some of the nuances with contractors versus employees is independent contractor, contractors determine when they work. They kind of determine how they work. They're not eligible for company benefits, but they kind of are engaged on like a project or a specific time period basis. And that flexibility kind of offsets the lack of benefits or you know, reliability, I suppose, of a steady employee-based job. Um, there are so many nuances to that. And, you know, if you're trying to decide between the two, consult a lawyer because you don't want to get yourself in hot water. But I decided that was the best thing for me, given that they were students and it would be a time period and I was paying on a per unit basis. And anyway, this this worked and it didn't. It worked because well, especially while I was at my job and then when I first left and had other stuff going on, the business was running without me there, which is what I really needed. The hard part is when you're paying on a per unit kind of project basis, the the motivation for quality isn't always there because the more that gets done, the more that get you get paid and the sooner you get paid. And um, what was tough is you know, coming back to stacks of rugs that weren't really being done right. And it just like took a lot of time and criticism. And what ended up eventually happening is that I would, it was a pay scale based on quality. And I very rarely didn't pay the full amount, but there were times when it was just, you know, laughable that I, that I had to put my foot down and be like, no, this isn't, this is ridiculous. Cause I was spending just as much time doing correctional work. Um, so there was a, a long period where that was pretty clunky that we eventually got to a better place because I honestly think they're kind of just, it's a hard canvas to paint on. And some people are more naturally artistic than others. And some, and, and it, life all comes down to incentives. It, just like Freakonomics eloquently explained that I'll never forget reading years ago in terms of how you, you just, you can't, you can't really believe anybody is trying to do the best thing for you because they're trying to do the best thing for themselves. And that's not a bad thing. It just means that the way you operate, you need to understand both sides of the coin. Um, and for my contractors, the benefit was I can work anytime as much as I want. And if I need more money that week, I'll paint more mats. If I need less money that week, I'll paint less or I won't come in. And that's where it got a little bit tricky because I wanted it to be flexible because I acknowledged they weren't employees. But at a point, I did feel taken advantage of. I felt like people just stopped showing up, uh, wouldn't tell me when they were coming in or not, would inexplicably not finish the list I asked. What I needed was communication. What I needed was just to tell me what your rough schedule would be so I could anticipate what was going to be coming in. Um, I really had a great experience with three, uh, three of the contractors that were there for about anywhere from one to two years each. The hardest part was at the end of two of the contractors' time with Be There in Five, they just ghosted me, which I don't know if that is 
something symptomatic of age. I would hate to typecast something down to age. I don't know if that's something that is really should be on my shoulders because of the lax environment that I established. Um, I don't really know what it is, but it really hurt. It really did. Um, And that's where I'm also bad as a manager, too, because somebody that's a little more black and white like my husband would be like, well, moving on their loss, that's their choice. Don't expect me to endorse them for any job. But uh, anyway, like um, it's not emotional. It's business. But for me, it is because they're people I spent a lot of time with. I had spent a lot of time talking to. I had tried to mentor. I really had um, I really had an investment in making sure that they knew they could do whatever they wanted and to be a resource for them to talk through things and personal or otherwise. And yeah, maybe that's not always appropriate. But I guess the point of my story is, I think ultimately, the hard part for me isn't that they weren't fulfilling their job, all the nuances of what a contractor is. They were basically doing that. It's that I developed a personal relationship with people that didn't ultimately give me the respect to just quit. Um, to say you're coming into work and then just never respond to a text or call is absurd (laughs) i'm sorry it if any of you out there like if you're in a difficult situation i don't care if it's a breakup a job a friendship whatever the the first 10 seconds are uncomfortable but then you're always glad you had the conversation but i i I don't know i was just disappointed i was disappointed i'm still not over it clearly i have had one contractor named marina that i'm still good friends with that is so awesome that helped me more than like she will ever even know like just a great person we're on the same wavelength really reliable um and i think it's a combination of you know being a person that wants to do well and work hard just for the hell of it just because that's the right thing to do and also a person whose schedule works with this style of work i'm not saying i'm a perfect boss at all i'm i was aware of that and as a result tried to make the perk being the flexibility and that you actually like you could make a lot of money if you if you made a lot of maths And I hate feeling like I'm in the position where I'm like, I feel like I'm groveling or I feel bad, but I'm paying them. A lot of that's probably me projecting that on myself. Because once you've established that environment of like, I'm cool, I'm lax, do what you want, it only gets worse and you can't can't reverse. So when the engagement goes down and I kind of took it personally, like, well, why don't they care anymore? But they still, you know, wanted work and wanted volume when they wanted it. But when they were busy, they were like, you know, they couldn't be bothered. Um, And then to ultimately one of them goes to me at holiday, which is like a really intense time. And I always say it is, but it's a time when they could be making money if they wanted to. And um, I was... I the one person canceled on me several days in a row and the, um, that day said they were coming in and it was snowy and then they didn't come in. And I was so worried and I didn't I was like, oh, well, I'm on the hook if, um, you know, something happened like I didn't want her to feel like she had to come in with the bad weather. I was worried about her safety. I left voicemails. I called. I texted, you know, six, eight hours was passing. I was like panicking. I was so worried. Um, I reached out to her friend that used to work for me and was like, is everything okay? And her friend was like, I haven't seen her. But then long story short, I followed her on Snapchat, which I don't really use. Um, but sometimes the 
the people that work there would like snap some of the math and stuff. And then I would like share it or see what they were saying. And, um, the, I looked at her story and she was just like out drinking with the same friend that I just texted to ask if she knew if she was okay. And she said she hadn't seen her in a few days. So it's just, it's this wild thing where like, I don't care if she's out. I don't care if you're drinking. I don't care what you do with your life. All I, all I need from you is just what I ask of you within the job constraints that will give you the income earned from working within those constraints. I think it's kind of like when anyone's looking for somebody and, you know, someone's not responding and then you see they tweeted or did something on Instagram or Facebook or even LinkedIn, whatever. Like we all, there's so many um, methods of which we can see somebody's activity. Um, I acknowledge I have a lot of shortcomings. I acknowledge a contractor isn't held to the standard that an employee is, but for it to happen twice, was a real wake up call to me that clearly I was a big part of the problem and I needed to look for something different in people. At first I thought like, well, the right type of person doesn't need to be overly invested. They just need to come here, make them and get them done. But I realized that that's, that doesn't actually work. You, you need somebody with some sort of personal stake in what you're doing to find meaning in what you're doing. And that's the advice I would give anybody because once I found people that were baseline interested in entrepreneurship and small business in Etsy in watching something build in helping something succeed in being involved in something small and growing like you just need to have an element of you that is interested or cares in something and the work will be a lot more pleasant for the person doing it because it's not it's just about progress right and if there's any element of a goal you have related to a job no matter how random it is I know painting rugs isn't like glamorous um but it was a part of something greater and i just needed to hire people that wanted to be a part of something greater and i now will tell people that you know i it is your right to quit this is at will if something isn't working for you i'd prefer we talk about it and if you need to quit no matter the place or time or timing just tell me. I will not be upset. It is your right. I just need to know. So A, I don't worry. And B, we don't irrevocably damage a working relationship that up until that point is incredibly positive. And that's what's such a shame about that disrespect that it's a moment of disrespect erases years of mentorship and friendship and um, I know that a lot of people that's like the style these days with dating and whatnot, but for the love of God, don't do it with employers because, you know, I'm sure a lot of it was my fault, but I sure as hell won't be ever recommending any of those people for a job or helping them out in any capacity because the trust was broken. It's not reciprocal anymore. The door is still open to this day, but neither of them have ever acknowledged that they just never came in. They just never responded to me. And I, yeah, had to let it go. Um, but those are the types of things that would happen that I just wasn't ready for. Because if somebody didn't come in or if they didn't do a good job, I just, I, 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 I didn't know. There's nothing I could do but just like stay up till all, all hours of the night buried in production, which I stupidly allowed to happen. Here's the thing. I'll always value the couple years I had with the girls, even the ones that left without me knowing. And even though I still don't really know why they were good at their jobs. And I was upset because they really helped me out. 
And they were really hard to replace. And I think I still to this day am disappointed with myself for not knowing that it had gotten to a point where they felt like they couldn't tell me. And let's be honest, if, if you're at a place where you're ghosting somebody because you know the person that's doing the ghosting, I hope, feels incredibly anxious about it, too. There's a there's a distinct reason why you feel like you can't have a conversation with the other person. And my guess is that my intensity, especially around holiday time, and especially because the, so much of the start of them working with me was me having two jobs, literally just coming in there so flustered, so tired, trying to piece together some semblance of a business model. And I wasn't you know, a prime example of a very uh, lucid, structured, level-headed, calm energy. I, I, I wasn't, all the things I would want in a boss, I wasn't. I, I did not have the capacity to be able to, to calibrate my feelings, emotions, actions with this situation to, to bring it down a notch. I just didn't I was acting in full reaction to what was going on and operating at the same speed. And I just, uh, I'm sure it was very difficult to be around that scatterbrained of a person. And even though things like tapered off after a while, how you start is, is how you finish. I think like, I, I think it's very hard to reset the baseline uh, not reputation, but like the baseline perception somebody has of you, I think is very much based off of first impressions and your dynamic is built on that. And that dynamic becomes impossible to shift over time. If somebody doesn't respect you at the beginning, they're not going to respect you more at the end. It's just, the, that's, that's just been my experience. And I just think that there, there's a lot I probably could have done to be taken more seriously, to be more professional and to give them more incentive to stay but none of that no no problems were communicated to me in a way that I would have known to course correct so that's why I think to for people that work for people even if it's an uncomfortable conversation uh, it's important to give feedback and it's important to touch base because yeah it might sting when you tell the person that there are issues but it's going to sting way worse when you leave them like hanging out to dry and they have no idea you're even unhappy. I think a lot of people are more flexible and would be more malleable than you think in terms of their um, you, their ways of working and what your duties are. And if you're unhappy, don't be unti- don't be entitled and don't ask for something that maybe isn't well matched with your level of experience, level of contribution, skill set, education, whatever. Like. It's important to know your value, but it's also important to know like when you think you deserve more than you actually do. Because I've, I in the corporate world and in this world, I've seen both sides of it, and I'm like, you know what? I support you. Good for you for asking for that. But just like in real estate, there's comps. Like there's everything has value, and you can't ask for something like abstract or arbitrary outside of kind of the norm of value, unless you're providing something that's outside of the norm and you're just like an unbelievably helpful outlier in which case I would I would spring for you um but sometimes I just find that I don't know people think they're like so much more awesome than they actually are and if you're like meeting your job description they think they should be promoted within like three months and I'm like what do you know like blow me away exceed my expectations and you get promoted you meet my expectations you'll stay in your role you know what I mean I'm not talking about the contractors anymore. I just mean in my other experience. But um, anyway, my point is, whether talking about uh, people I've worked with, whether or talking about the retailers that didn't work out, not one 
morsel of my being feels like a victim, feels like the stores are too rigid, they pay too little, that my employees were, you know, doing some personal attack on me. Like, I I take full responsibility for every bad decision I've made. I take full responsibility for overextending myself and trying to work with businesses that were too big beyond my scale, that had processes and compliance requirements that aren't fit for a small business, that have margins necessary to run their business. Clearly, they work. Clearly, all of these places are up and running and fine. It's not about them. It was about my misjudgment going into certain situations of what I couldn't, couldn't handle. I think prior to this point in my life, I, and I'm sure a lot of people identify with, and I don't say this to brag about myself. I say this because people that work hard often see results. And I am not a person that I think is particularly talented or has anything anybody doesn't, but I do think that hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard. But anyways, what I mean is I've, I, up, up until this point in my life, most things I had gone out for, I had gotten, not that I got everything. I was never like top of the class. I was never winning awards, but I always was like steady, strong. Like if I really focused on something and wanted it, I felt like I could make it happen. I always have felt like in me, I have the capability to do more, even though sometimes I actively choose not to. And I, this was the first time that I was truly in over my head And this was the first time I couldn't wax poetic about you can do anything you put your mind to. (laughs) Um, And I think that this was really hard for me to realize and digest that my venturing into wholesale was a bad idea. My um, trying to venture into printing mats in bulk and selling the non-handmade ones and selling them to retailers and putting all my time, energy, focus into that and letting the thing that was making me the most money, the handmade business, get less attention and kind of stall. That was a mistake. Um, at that time, I had so much momentum and was making so much money off of the hand-painted mats, that you, it, but you steer where you stare. And I steered away from that and just kind of like let it live and breathe, but didn't let it allow it to really grow or evolve in the way that I probably should have. And focusing on more administrative, strategic efforts and wholesale efforts, I think that's probably a big part of what made my contractors lose engagement because I was losing engagement with the part of the business they were still doing. And at the time, I was of the mindset that the handmade part was a a means to an end, and it wasn't ultimately something I'd want to actually be the product. That's why I think to kind of go back to the other thing that was happening synonymously, I kind of doubled down on wholesale because I thought, well, if I, if this can be a solid income stream, even though they're half the price, if I can sell at a certain volume, it'll be worth it. And they're all the printed mats. I would never wholesale the hand painted ones. There was no way I could dis volume discount those to make it worth it because with a handmade product, there are not economies of scale. It does not benefit me in any way, um, to make a minimum amount. It's just more work. Um, so I was like, okay, maybe this will help me scale the printed business. And I'm also interested in the different customer touch points. How does brick and mortar differ from online? When somebody needs a last minute gift, they're going to go to a store. Online, people were willing to wait these lengthy wait times. Um, But I was curious, like, if you could buy this right this second, would you? And 
I did a couple different wholesale avenues. First was Etsy Wholesale, which was overall a positive experience, but I was having to buy each SKU in at least amounts of 50 to 100. But this was for the wholesale and direct-to-customer businesses. So it got up to me buying 250, 500 of certain popular SKUs that I needed to house. Um, So even for the small boutiques, let's say the minimum order was five to 10 of each SKU, that was even harder for small boutiques because A, they take up a lot of service area, B, they're hard to merchandise, and C, it wasn't allowing me to sell like a good mix of my SKUs so they could test and learn and see what was working. But so basically I ended up caving and kind of being like, you can have any SKU, just a minimum total amount of rugs. But the problem was is that that didn't benefit the style in which I was buying because my minimums were per SKU. So then I, I, got, I got rid of all this predictability in terms of what I was buying and started holding on to way too much inventory. Holding on to inventory is never good. There's no reason. The best thing I think you can do is just get your process streamlined enough so that you things can be kind of made to order, but in the most efficient way possible. That's not always ideal. And when you have years and years of data, you can kind of predict your SKU mix. But to this day, depending on what Etsy features, the SEO, what's trendy at the time, who features it somewhere random, like I, my SKU mix is all over the board. There's not a lot of consistency. It's really hard to predict. So unless I was making them in-house and it didn't matter what the minimum was, I uh, unfortunately was going to be stuck with a lot of inventory. So during this time, I'm buying in larger amounts. I still have the handmade business still fully going and people making the mats. They need a place to go to make them. But we ran out of room in that office building. And at this time, I had a big retailer reach out to me. So I was reached out to by Nordstrom and I was reached out to by Wayfair. And a big website, several big websites reach out to me. And I want to be clear, I'm not naming names of these places to call them out or to suggest anybody should or should not do business with them. I wanted to say yes and then figure it out. Um, but there's many specific reasons why this was much more difficult for my business than it might be for another person's. And they're clearly great, well-oiled machines that a lot of people have a lot of success in. But I wouldn't be speaking honestly about my experience if I was like, well, retailer A and online dropshipper B. It's just like, I can't. Um, and I, I they, they don't need my endorsement anyway. But uh this the, my point of all of this is is to help people learn to learn from my mistakes to understand that an objective success story has a lot more layers to it and um if if any of these can serve as a watch out for a small business in order to scale and grow to a size where these things work that is my message not to not work with them period and what's so interesting is that when you are new you take retail inquiries as being incredibly flattering and the idea of being sold in stores to be like some uh, measure of success that is for your ego, is to say you did, is something cool, but is often really not the best decision for a business of a certain size because the margins required and the level of control you lose is incredibly hard to deal with. So a luxury retailer... I won't tell you exactly, has a very, very uh, high margin. They're, the the amount you get when all is said and done is lower than 50%. And if your costs are already higher than a typical uh, manufacturer in a Keystone model, 
the sliver, the sliver you're getting becomes incredibly small. And the retailer has the power to not really meet your minimums. And it's really doing you a favor if you're put in the stores. So I really had no negotiating power. So that was the trouble with places like Nordstrom, which I did end up selling in for a a period of time. I was supposed to initially be in 12 markets making um, SKUs. It was like two or three mats each for the individual town. And it was a cool idea. I really loved it. I came up with the designs. I spent forever on it. And then I kind of decided like, I, I just was so on the fence about what to do about producing them because I would have to make 50 of each style. So that's 50 of each style for uh, three styles per city for, I don't know, it was like 10 to 12 cities, I forget. It, it was a ton of inventory. And at this time, I wasn't really thinking it through and I was thinking I was really going to go through with that. And then with Wayfair too, Wayfair is a dropship model. So that basically just means that it's a network of small sellers that are completely self-sufficient and they use their online platform, but they never touch the product. The individual seller is sending you the product. Pretty similar to Amazon, even though Amazon now manufactures and houses a lot of its own inventory. So if somebody places an order on Wayfair, it's not going to some Wayfair warehouse. It's going to me, the small business selling on Wayfair, and I still am doing all the work even though they get half the amount of money. Sometimes it's worth it for the exposure. But the way a lot of these dropshipping companies do, and I've talked to and started, gotten in the system of, of several of them, and the reason they're successful is because there's a lot of incentive in, term, in terms of what gets you ranked high. The more money they make and the lower your margin is, you're ranked higher. The more, uh, the, the, the higher quality photos, the better keywords, the more you do the features and you do the sales and you really comply with a, a lot of different items that gets the third party more money. That's how you rank higher. I was never in a position to be discounting at that level, though. And I was never in a position to be lowering my margin, especially when I was the one doing the work. So I was getting myself into these two situations, both dropshipping and high-end retailer, where I was pricing my items at a 50 per, 50% discount because no one's going to take less than that. I'll tell you that much. That, and that was like the most I could do. <clears throat> but my costs were higher than they should have been percentage-wise because I was ordering and making in small quantities. And then the luxury retailer takes a much higher cut than a normal one. And then the drop shipper still has you do all the work. So either way, my margin was getting cut into pretty damn close to the cost. And it was all of my focus and all of my energy completely moved away from Etsy and my website and the handmade business and just was ramping up wholesale because I was thinking at a certain level of volume, this will pay off. So I ended up renting a loft space that I eventually moved into because I had never seen anything like it. For the square footage, it was fairly affordable. It was actually an apartment you were supposed to live in I was using for business that I used it for that for a year when I was ordering a crap ton of inventory and spending all my time there anyway. I honestly was working so much. I needed some place where I could put a couch and like have a TV and actually hang out <laughs> after work um, or while I was working. I wanted a place that Greg could come and like sit with me because I felt like I wasn't spending a lot of time with him. I kind of needed this hybrid home office that I didn't actually live in because I want the, wanted the separation. I didn't want contractors having to come to my home or whatever. Long story short, it was really expensive. And up until for me, I talked to a lot of other business owners and they made it seem like it was really par for the course for what a lease, a commercial lease cost at that time and in that area. 
but I needed so much space for all of these rugs that I kind of front loaded the the rent costs and the need to have this before I was even getting started in wholesale. So I was just kind of bleeding money on this lease cost. I was still making it was I was making more than I was spending, but I wasn't making as much as I did before. And I remember I'd quit my job. And the first year out of my job, I just lived off of my bonus from my corporate job and what I had saved. That went really fast. Um, and then I wasn't making as much disposable income as I once did because I now had a really, really high rent. And to maintain the volume I was at, I had to keep paying people to make the mats. But I wasn't really changing the business in any way that I was making any more money. It was just there's there's no efficiencies being made. Like the more mats I sold, the more I just had to pay the same amount to more people for more products. And it was just like a sliding scale. Like I never no, there was no never any increment to my growth. And that was a huge problem. I had not set the business up in a way that I would ultimately make more money the more I sold. It was just kind of always an even revenue cost game. So that made the hand-painted business kind of stall. And then I had an immense lease cost. And then I had to order in these large quantities for these wholesale partners. So the problem with a dropship site like a Wayfair, they don't order minimums. They still get the 50% markdown, but they don't have to order minimums because... They're not the ones prepaying it. So it's this weird thing where they get a hefty discount, but there's no requirement of, of the volume of the sale. And again, I wish I had thought of that. A brilliant business model on their behalf. Wayfair is an incredible company that I buy a lot from. I'm explaining this to you because if you're in a, a similar size and position that I was in, I would really think twice about if this is the right thing for you. Um and the other hard part of that was I did not know that I didn't have ultimate control over price. So if when an other retailers and I, I sold through some different online retailers and tr- tested out different things, and I just it never really worked because my biggest problem was not only providing a discount, even though I was doing a lot of the work for f- fulfillment and fulfillment is the part I hate the most and shipping um, not only was it that part, but also for each system and retailer I worked with, I did set up this whole infrastructure and re-upload all the listings and redo all of the verbiage and language and specs in their terms and match up with their SKUs. And like everyone just has a different set of requirements for shipping. And it just is so much work to get set up. And then once you're set up in the system, what was happening is I'd ultimately be competing with myself because the bulk of my income was still direct to customer on Etsy or my website. But if a third party has control over the cost, they're going to co- they're going to make it cheaper than mine. <laughs> so then I'm selling on a site where I'm making half of it and not that much more volume, but it's just taking share from my other site at half the price. Um, and that was a big problem. And I just did not have control over how they priced it as much as I tried. And they tried to be flexible, but a lot of it's automated. And the mats were just consistently showing up as if you googled them it would be like buy on wayfair for three four dollars cheaper why i would do that why wouldn't you so that was tricky um and then with nordstrom again incredible company one of my favorite stores but the nature of luxury retail is something i didn't really understand on two fronts one is the markup is higher than 50 percent 
So if you have an MSRP and it's for sale other places that they need to meet, they don't raise the price. You just have to lower your costs so they meet that margin. The second piece is the requirements to ship product to a loading dock to be uploaded into an inventory SKU system. Not only do you have to set yourself up with something called an EDI, an electronic data interchange, for a bigger retailers, which takes a lot of time and investment and is incredibly confusing at first, but every shipment you make has to be labeled a certain way on every side of the box, packed a certain way, materials a certain way. If not, it's sent back. Everything has to be in separate boxes. And like the logistics of it took me, would take me like days to sort through to make sure it was okay. And I just wasn't, those are the things that an existing seller has up and running. And I, and I just, I just didn't. Um, And then I guess I said it was two parts. One is the markup. Two is the logistical complications of actually getting and fulfilling the inventory and making yourself a part of every disparate system that each retailer uses, lives, and breathes by and requires a 12-hour response time within in addition to having your other jobs. The other part of that is the inventory mix and uh, how many, how you anticipate what they need when they aren't they are in a position of power. They don't have to meet your minimums but you still want to try it. So you're at first taking a really bad margin with not enough product and working your ass off to get it to them on time and in the right form and investing your time and money into making yourself compliant with their systems. That is a ton of labor on my end that I was doing by myself in an industry I never worked in, literally just opening tabs on my computer, watching YouTube videos, talking to people if I could. I I had no idea how any of this worked. But at this time, because I had to front load a lot of inventory to be able to meet these wholesale requirements, I had leased the space and was still paying people to do the handmade ones. So I had so many expenses at that point, I couldn't afford somebody to help me navigate through the retail systems that was already a subject matter expert because that person would cost way too much. This is what normal people probably get financing, a loan, a grant, whatever. This is probably when I should have gone into debt for a minute, but I was just always so scared of that. I think somewhere in my gut, I knew that the rugs weren't my end all be all. And that I got to a point where I, I, I think I knew that I didn't want to own a rug empire. And I think I was going through the motions of what I should be doing with the opportunities I should be taking and the risk rewards that I should be analyzing of a person that wants to be a giant rug company. I, I, I thought I had more to offer. I did. And I, not that the be there in five wasn't enough to me, be there in five is the umbrella brand of a million things I want to do. But to me, it was my first idea. It wasn't necessarily my best. It wasn't necessarily my last. And I, I, I could never get to a place where I treated it that way. And I think because of that, I made a lot of um, conservative financial decisions, but a lot of, I took a lot of risks operationally and I I don't know. It's like I was taking risks in the wrong places and being conservative in the wrong places. And I just absolutely was underwater. Worse than the first time. Because the first time I had another source of income. The first time I had the adrenaline. But now I was... I, it was like I initially had spent all this time uh, lifting the metaphorical SUV off of my business child with that adrenaline. Only to 
get the child out partial way, but maybe under the midsize SUV with no adrenaline left in me, just kind of like waiting for somebody to help me. But I had no means of contacting them. I wasn't even trying to get them. I was just convinced that at some point I would magically be graced with the energy, enthusiasm and the opportunity and luck again to get myself out from under it. And it just wasn't happening. And around this same time is when, you know, people were ghosting me when I just didn't have as much income anymore. I was spending so much money on the potential of these things working that in my gut, I didn't really even know that I wanted. It's it's really owning a business is such hard work. It is excruciating if it's work you don't want to be doing. And that's why for a lot of it, you know, you make a list of like things you like and you don't like, like I've said before, and you delegate the things you don't like. This is a luxury you kind of have at the beginning when these things are covered in the cost of your product. So even at the beginning, I was always set up where like I had an accountant, I had lawyers, I had people helping me with the production of rugs. I I hired a shipping and fulfillment center to help me with the printed rugs. I, I had so many things really well delegated operationally, but then I didn't delegate well in the strategic aspects and in the growth of the company. And then all of a sudden, when I already had more than a full-time job running the business as it was, I added on a whole other department without getting any help, without getting any experts, and everything was taking me way too long to do and costing me way too much money to do. So the best thing, the best decision I ever made in that period when I was, I was really just not happy. I was really struggling, and I don't think I really told anybody because you're objectively living your dream. You're objectively the person everyone's like, wow, you took a chance, you made something, you built a business and it worked and you quit your job. You made your side hustle into your full-time job. Like that is the goal. That is the dream. But I was kind of sitting there being like, I think I made a mistake. This isn't working. This is way too much work. I'm so overwhelmed. I don't have the time, resources, money to get the help I need, but I'm already halfway in these decisions. I kind of want to back out of in terms of having set myself up with these retailers, having contracts and ordering some of the inventory. Um, So I think I was really reluctant to tell anybody that I was really second guessing if this is what I wanted to be doing. Um, I the smartest thing I ever did. Well, this is actually advice my husband gave me. I was really struggling with the requests of a lot of retailers, boutique or the big ones like Nordstrom, having to meet their specs while still making money. And I was feeling like I was just doing things because I said I would, even though it wasn't the right business decision for me. They, whoever had more leverage, I was just kind of giving in to what they needed. And I remember Greg saying, the first person you fire is your worst customer. The customer that takes the most time and uses the most resources for the least return. And I guess I just had never thought of it that way. I had never thought about firing a customer because all, all business is good business, right? Wrong. <laughs> Not even close. And when it was framed like that, and I thought about what was taking so much of my time, my stress, my energy, my resources, my product, like, but not making me any money, it was a lot of these retailers and a lot of the ones that wanted custom items. So the, what, the Nordstrom piece, fortunately, I had this realization right before I was about to order pre-printed mats three different kinds for all of these cities that I couldn't sell other places and that I also couldn't, I wouldn't have any visibility or prediction of how many they would ultimately buy. 
And at that point, I knew that I could think something is so creative, so unique, so cool, and nobody buys it. Like, it's just very hard to figure out what catches on. To this day, like, you're, like, really pretty. It was started as a joke. I, I, I honestly really wanted my mats to be functional, but I just thought that was a silly, you know, popular quote and a compliment that was lighthearted, but not overly serious or deep. And it's still one of my best sellers, which is just so wild. And I know it's most often attributed to mean girls. At that point, it was so ubiquitous. I wasn't really even thinking of it in that context. And I am careful not to label it that because I don't want it to be linked to the movie. I don't I don't even like that it is. I don't like to sell things that are based off of somebody else's work. But that one's just kind of always stuck. But trust me, it's uh, made a lot of other doormat makers and people way more money than it's made me because that one is... You know, it, it was copied rampantly and I couldn't do anything about it because I, I could have chased trademarking it in that category. But for words that weren't inherently mine, I just didn't feel it was right. I didn't feel it was worth it. Um, and, you know, I would never want to be on Tina Fey's bad side. Love her so much. Um, but anyway, I decided that I was going to say no, that I was going to say I want to be in these two cities. I want to be in Chicago and these are these other cities I have strong designs in and mats I've already made. I'm not going to place a five-figure inventory and go into debt for sales I do not know I have yet for a company that's taking a lot of my time, just not making me money, not because it's their problem, but because my size and my operation is not fit for the type of client, they, the vendor they even need. And I wanted to be that because I was so flattered and so excited. And I thought it'd be so cool to be in those stores. And I thought it meant something. But all it means is you're physically in those stores. At the end of the day, all that matters is if you have a sound business model that will make you money off of that. The, the ego part, the cool part that gets you nothing. Um, it gets you bragging rights. I'll say that. Because like I always say, like I've sold in stores and I'll name Wafer, I'll name Nordstrom. Because it, it does legitimize you in a sense. And in, in, that, in that way, I'm grateful. I mean, of course, I'm grateful that they're interested, period. And I'm disappointed forever in myself that I couldn't make it work because obviously many, many people do. Um, but I said I turned down a, purchase, a large purchase order um, just in fear of the volume of inventory I'd have, the amount I was going to spend, and the lack of predictability and who was going to buy it. And that was the smartest decision I ever made. So I ended up doing a very small partnership with Nordstrom instead of a very big one. But I think had I done the big one, I would have just ended up with a lot of product at Nordstrom Rack. And I would have been embarrassed and I wouldn't have made the money I needed to. And I would have had all these products exclusively sold for a place that a place wasn't even buying. And I was just stuck with. And um, they sold well in Chicago. They sold well in Hawaii. They did well, but it just it wasn't enough to justify the maintenance and I think I was slowly coming to terms with the fact that I didn't want to be in retail. So slowly over the course of probably a year, I said, like, I'm going to take a hiatus with Nordstrom, with Wayfair, with the other sites I was on. Um, I sold at Nylon at one point. I was in talks with Amazon with Who's, with uh, like so many other sites that I was kind of getting set up for. But then I just had a moment and I just kind of backed out and I was like, I don't want to be doing this. And I had this realization of like, just like my happy place is the handmade mats and the Etsy shop and the direct to customer, not just for the money, but for the experience and for the joy and originality that comes with that process and not having to fit into the, the regiment of these big retailers. And I'm not making enough money to justify that time spent. But also, 
to for that to ever work, I would have had to be at a level of volume that I just realized I didn't want to be at. And I realized I really liked working with the boutiques. I really liked working with Etsy Wholesale. I really liked working with the mom and pop shops, the gift shops, the the, the smaller non-chain stores that sold unique gifts because I felt I was a unique product. And so after backing out of the um, some of the bigger engagements I had and eating a lot of the cost of getting set up for that, I decided to do my first trade show, which is honestly an incredible experience, experience and something I'm so glad I did. It was not even on my radar that that should be a thing I was doing to get my products into stores, into boutiques, which is hilarious because for most merchants, it's the only way they ever get into a store. And I, it, again, I knew nothing. This was a huge blind spot I had. So I get set up with this trade show in Chicago. My mom and sister come to help me. I build what I think is a beautiful booth. Um, I, we have wine and we have cookies and I build out an entire separate wholesale site. I get myself set up with Square so I can accept point of purchase payments. I make all of, I, I make all of these, you know, policies and procedures and minimums and charts and like all of this literature that's required to sell and like, it, it, that was months and months of work. And um, we get to the trade show and it's primarily apparel. It was positioned to me as being somewhat of a gift market, but they were trying to grow it as a gift market. So it was like a bunch of clothing companies and a doormat shop. <laughs> and I was like, are you kidding me? And then the first day, like two people came to the booth and I was just like so embarrassed. I was dying. Like I, I flew in my mom, my sister, I put so much work into it. My end goal was to offload a lot of the inventory I had collected when I was one is going to be in bigger wholesale, but then realized I didn't want to be. Um, what ultimately happened is that like the biz, it is true when it, with a four day plus trade show, there are busier days than others and the weekends are busier. The weekends are so busy, like we couldn't even think straight. We we're just like moving so fast. But what came with that was you, you pivot. I didn't know what people were going to want. And what happened was more so than wanting the pre-made mats I had, people wanted custom mats for their own store, for their own phrase, for their own place. And I weirdly got myself back into the same situation where the nature of a custom product is that I have to do the design work and there's so much more back and forth and labor on my end, yet even though it's a little bit more expensive, it's hard for them to discernibly charge more for the custom mat than the you're like really pretty mat because they don't look objectively different to the customer, even though the cost is different to them. So then if they want it, it ends up eating slightly into my margin. I did push back on a decent amount of this and I did charge more, but it still didn't end up being worth it because in putting the power of the customization in the store's hands, I, as the subject matter expert, wasn't pushing back on their design ideas because I was just kind of becoming like a third party vendor. Like I was like private labeling essentially. And in doing that, it made a lot of retailers unfavorable to my product because their phrase or design was bad. And even when I was doing it, I knew it. But at that point I was just like, well, they're paying me for it. And I said I would do it. So I've got to do it. And I did this trade show right before Thanksgiving, Black Friday. And people were just like ringing me off the hook to get these mats to them before Black Friday. And that was incredibly stressful and took months of time away from the normal business so then that at that time I'm going in I think my third holiday season and it's just yet again I got myself into another cluster the trade show was awesome because what I loved is that I got 
firsthand feedback, people walking by, complimenting what I did, loving my story, thinking it's interesting, wanting stuff in their store. I got a lot. I got a lot of purchase orders. Uh, I think I got in over 50 boutiques during that trade show, which was awesome. But again, a lot of those were custom. A lot of those came back, but a lot didn't. And when I kind of went back and collected data and surveyed it out, I realized what I hadn't done is given them best practices for merchandising. Like big um, company, I mean, like Kendra Scott, like they, they heavily vet their retailers. They don't even blink. They don't even sell at a place that doesn't completely meet their standards and completely meet, meet their merchandising standards. And big companies send like audits to make sure their products are being sold right because the location in a store and the positioning in a store is extremely important to how it gets bought. And when I would go to some of these stores in the area or my family or friends would go, they would always be on the floor. They would always be strewn about. You wouldn't really see them or understand what they were for. And they were kind of a big item to have like on your shopping day and like the places where they would have racks or put them up or do something different with them. Have them. A lot of places had them in the dressing rooms and that worked really well because then people would ask if they could buy them. There was just a lot of do's and don'ts I learned through that process. Um, But right around that time, I got engaged and start planning a wedding. And between the trade show, the ramped up wholesale business, the backing out of the other wholesale business and the focusing on my handmade business, which was still steady and still as big as ever. And keep in mind, that was at one point my full job. That hand painted part in itself made me quit my job. Then I took on all these other businesses and didn't get help and just was so miserable, but not telling anybody. And then I had to plan a wedding, which I wanted to be excited about, but it just felt so tedious. I didn't know where I wanted to have it. I'm from Virginia. Greg's from Michigan. We met in New York. We live in Chicago. But my family now lives in North Carolina. I was struggling with the concept of home. I it just it was like just a lot was going on at this time. I just have to tell you, I'm recording this the day after because as I was recording that, Greg got home and he's quiet as a mouse and I didn't hear him. I turn around, he scared the crap out of me. And of course, I'm like, you know, I got to engage. Planning a wedding was really menial. It's like, Jesus, couldn't you walk in when I was saying something profound? I've literally not talked about you the entire time. Actually, I did once, but it was flattering. And then, you know, whatever, go figure. Anyway, um... But yeah, so I I had gotten engaged and was feeling a little bit overwhelmed. As you know, wedding planning, like when you're before you're a bride, you think everyone's really like overreacting and over exaggerating. And I agree with like the part about being like a total B word to everybody and being overly demanding because I think people use that as a crutch. But I do think it's a time that's really intense. You can still be nice and cool, but it's 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 like there's just like a lot of logistics. And then I chose to have a wedding in Italy, <laughs> um, which honestly was the best decision I could have ever made, which was a great escape for me at this time, which is a very meaningful place to Greg and I and will be for years. And um, it, it was like, it, it hands down the best thing ever. Um, but with that said, it was it was a ton of work, it was a ton of logistics. I, had, I spent like months building out like a detailed website. I was like co- learning to code. I don't even know why. Um, and it, it uh, yeah, so that was going on in the meantime. And also, if you've followed me for a while, you know my saga with moving. Basically, the past three places we've lived have sold within like the first year of our lease, requiring us to move quickly. And while the first move was okay, because we actually moved into that loft, into my studio, it was getting too expensive. 
it was like over 2000. It was huge for the city. Um, so it was could be separated easily. And I thought like, OK, maybe this will help with some of my money anxiety. This will help incentivize me to offload a lot of the inventory. This will help me just downsize because this was like. This was pretty close to when we moved in, it was pretty close to around the time that people had left and that I was doing the trade show and I was just doing some trying some new things um, in terms of how to restructure the business. So I didn't have to have this huge onsite operation. I realized like I had in trying to make the business efficient, I had like brought back all the operations on site. Like I brought in all this inventory, I brought in drop shipping and fulfillment. I had added on more work with like Wayfair and another channel that wasn't really making me the margins I needed. I was just like, everything was in house all of a sudden when my whole mission this entire time had been to have a streamlined business where I leverage different resources. And at one point it was like pretty close to having, um, but anyway, it was almost like when I had the smaller space, I was forced to make uh, tougher decisions and to rely on the delegation to external partners but then when I had the physical space to have every operation in the same place, it actually wasn't the right decision. Um, I should have been focused on only strategic, only managerial, only high level things, only on watching over both sides of my business. But instead, I got really back in the weeds because I was living in it. Um, so the moving thing started to get complicated because we lived in that uh, studio for a short time when our apartment sold. But then this, the loft studio that we moved into that was expensive to rent for my business, but not expensive to live and work in, that sold about like six months after we moved into it. And then we find out that we have to move 13 days before our wedding date. I don't know. It was just like, it was insane. It was absolutely insane. Long story short, we did get out like 15 days earlier even though we had the right to sever the lease. Um, it just wasn't worth my energy anymore. And we um, found a new place in that spring. I literally spent all my time of looking for apartments, planning my wedding. And for the first time, I was like, wow, this is great that I'm self-employed because I actually have time to do this stuff. Not great, though, because I lost focus. I really did. I think I was about to hit a wall and hit a harder time and hit some like major decisions I had to make but I just, I wasn't ready. So the one thing I did do is I downsized a ton to move right before our wedding. And I got back in with our, uh, with my shipping partner. Now, when I j had just started Be There in Five, this startup in Chicago had started called ShipBob. And they were one of the biggest breakthroughs I'd ever had for Be There in Five. Um, because after a year of like running to and from the post office in sheer misery and just staring in that soul sucking line under the halogen lighting, only to have people yell at me who I'm giving money to, I was like, the post office was like a huge, huge like issue I had. Um, they they were doing a lot of my fulfillment work in terms of just like even picking up and taking my packages. Now they operate more as a a, a third party logistics system for small businesses that aren't going to ramp up and have their own logistics system. So it's, it's kind of like Amazon logistics for small businesses. Um, so you can efficiently ship and handle returns and warehouse inventory and all that stuff. 
Um, so I worked with them a ton at the beginning. They changed everything. But then when I kind of brought everything back in house, I stopped using them for a little while because so all of the things you hate about working with other vendors, like in, in like your normal life and personal life, that becomes your stress in your work life. And when it's yours and when you're accountable for it and your name's on it, you're just like, screw it, I'll do it myself. And like, that is, that is the, the downfall of, of the business owner. That is something I've done so many times. And then I have just taken control of it myself because the anxiety and, and fury wasn't worth it. But I now realize I should have worked through it. So anyways, I, I start to delegate and outsource a lot more before my wedding and basically work really hard to make it so that Be There in Five can run without me. Um, I get my dropshipper. I get my production partner. I actually had a big breakthrough with production um, with a partner that I now work without in, Il- in the suburbs of Illinois, that um, suburbs of Illinois, Chicago, that um, took, took a totally different approach to how I manufacture the mats. It was extremely helpful. It made customization easier. It was a huge breakthrough. I cried on the way home. And um, I don't think that part's that interesting. And I'm not going to tell you what it is that's my intellectual property a lot of people have questions about like sourcing and stuff but that's tricky because like the way i do things a my product is so weird and b um it took me years and years and years to figure out a lot of trial and error a lot of money lost a lot of unhappy customers um but i i always try to keep improving the product uh is something that i've always prioritized the second i hear a complaint or there's an issue i really try to find the next best thing and we'll seek it out and Back then, when I used to feel very steamrolled that no production partners would talk to me because I was too small, whatever. Now I don't feel that way. Now I feel like I have the right to have a voice because I have the numbers to prove it. I have the success to prove it. And it's in their best interest to work with somebody that has other ideas that their technology can bring to life. Or that's how I position it, even if I don't really. Um, But... Anyway, the the problem with streamlining your business so it runs without you is that it runs without you. And then you become the thing that's not indispensable. You become replaceable. You become a little bit lost because the thing that you spent all your time and energy controlling, caring about, uh, absolutely consumed by, that if you weren't working on it, seven to 10 every day, AM to PM, Christina Milian, then you, it would crumble. And in having to move so much, in having to leave the country for a while, in making, giving myself kind of a a very difficult situation living wise and wedding planning wise, I was forced to take a step back and I was forced to not be consumed. And This was like the best and worst thing that ever happened to me. So I'm going to pause here and split this into two episodes because I am at 115 and I still have so much more left from the rest of last year. Right now we're in like May, June of 2017. Um, When I, yeah, make the business run without me, I leave, I come back and uh you know it's not great it's not great it's uh it's a tough it's a tough phase and i'm going to talk through that in the next part and kind of review the emotional side of um the conflict i felt 
and where my heart was versus where my business was versus also feeling incredibly mad at myself for essentially what felt like self-sabotage because I could and should and would have done so much more if if I could go back. But then again, I wouldn't take it back from where I am now. And I think it was all important. I think it always is important to, to follow whatever path you're on and to follow your gut because my gut was telling me you don't want to build a giant rug empire only to snap out of it in two years and be like I don't want to do this anymore and then then what do you have to do uh then your 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 preferences are affecting other people's jobs and lives and you have too many people involved and I just think I knew what I wanted out of life and out of my career but I didn't know how to get there and I had to get through a lot of like depression and denial (laughs) in order to have the cloud lifted and in order to forgive myself for feeling like I failed as an entrepreneur and in order to reframe my thinking as to why I'm actually a great entrepreneur, but a poor small business owner. And those are two very different things. And I will talk through that on the next episode. But for now, since, you know, this is a bit of a downer toward the end, uh, I just referenced Christina Milian AM to PM, and that is, you know, essentially the essence, the life of an entrepreneur. It is AM to PM. It is nonstop. And uh, thanks for being patient with me. The past month or two has been a little bit crazy. And I started this podcast when I just had a little bit more time. And as you heard in this past episode, I have a huge problem with getting help and feeling like I can afford to pay help, even though if you spend money, you make money. So I, I need help with like editing and whatnot. And I just, I don't know. I, I have, I have, I have serious problems. Um, I just, I'm so controlling. I like feel like I need to listen to and hear and control every second. And am I ever going to learn? Find out in part three. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, in part three, you'll, you'll hear a lot of different stuff from, you know, not so great depressive period to kind of trying to see my way through it and reconnect with what I loved and, um, find my way out and what a weird role Instagram played in the whole thing. What a weird role pop culture and played in this whole thing. And then ultimately led to this podcast too. Like the, the next six months of this story, like kind of does a 180. And the best part is at the time I thought I was so stuck and didn't even know I was mid 180, which is the exact message I always want to get across is that when it's the worst, you're actually in motion. Um, anyway, Stay tuned. We'll post it very soon. It's already recorded. I just have to edit it because I, I, I just, I say a lot of mumbo jumbo. It's like, I, I get very like wax poetic and I just, no one needs to hear that. I need to keep it concise. And also what is mumbo jumbo? I need to look that up. It made me hungry for gumbo. I'm very hungry. Okay. This is, this is, this is no, gotta go. Um, as always, let me know your thoughts and I'll let you know mine. I'll be there in five. I swear. Somebody hit the lights so we could rock it day and night. People getting down, that's right. From AM to PM. Everybody looking like stars. All the chicks and the fellas in the bars. All of y'all bumping this in your car. From AM to PM. Days a year, 24 a day, 7 days a 